0: Well, it's great to be together again for Sunday. Um, I wonder if there was anything from last week that has stirred in you um, during the week that has gone. Um, if you were here last week, um, I spoke on the, from the story of uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and how the Lord um, had led Philip to the eunuch and that in that encounter um, that the Lord asked Um, Philip to go further than he was anticipating. He asked Philip to go to an uncomfortable place. He asked Philip to get into a chariot of a man who was very unfamiliar and going in a direction where he was probably quite unsure. And um, there was a lot of unfamiliarity that he was invited into. We looked at how Philip was responsive to um, the Holy Spirit's leading. Um, We looked at how the power of when the gospel is preached, that it changes lives we looked at how Philip didn't pay any attention to all of the religious barriers that um, would have been there in the background for this eunuch not to be baptised. But nonetheless, Philip said, pull up the chariot, pull up the horse. There's some water. Let's go for it. And didn't allow any of um, any reason why not to get in the, reason, in, in the way of every reason why to. And we saw this incredible story. And so there was, uh, out of last week, there were eight traits of a, of a church, of a, of a person who is committed to discipleship. And it's the first slide there, Rock. Um, could you just put those up there for us from last week? And these were the things that we embrace inconvenient interruptions, particularly when they're from God. And we get comfortable being uncomfortable, respond to the still small voice. We're willing to get into unfamiliar places and we lead with curiosity. We speak uh, Jesus, the gospel. We ignore religious barriers and we're okay to play our part. I'm curious to know if there's anybody who has any testimony that they want to bring this morning to any of these things. Has there been a prompting of God in your life where you have heard the still small voice of God and gone, I'm going to follow? Have you found yourself in an uncomfortable place? you found yourself you know, being inconvenienced by God this week? Have you been driving along and you're late for somewhere and you've seen someone pulled over on the side of the road and you're like, Rah! or who didn't pull over? <laughs> no, we won't do that one. <laughs> any, any testimony this morning? Anyone, anyone heard from God this week in a, in a small, quiet, leading jest? Do you want to come and share for a moment? Greg, you just want to turn that microphone on for us there. And um, This builds faith. Testimony builds faith. And... Um, Thanks, Jess.
1: Yeah. um, I actually was on kids last week, (laughs) so I wasn't even in here. But seeing those things up there um, really just was so relatable Mm. to the experience I had um, this week. Um, Most of you would know I'm a teacher at Innebara School, um, and I lead the biblical studies department there. And one of my roles is to run a program for our year 11 and 12 students. which is called a theology and philosophy forum. And so my, one of my roles is to actually talk to all of the year 11s and 12s about theology and about God, um, which is quite a confronting space and a difficult thing to do. And this week, um, I always find whenever I speak at forum, my week is really difficult. Just all these external circumstances in my life happen that make it really, really hard to actually just even have the time to put something together make of that what you will, but it's just difficult. And then this particular week, I just felt this really strong prompting to share a bit of my own personal story with the kids. And I was really scared to do that, um, because as you can understand at a school, there are certain things that you can and can't do. Um, And I just wasn't sure whether I felt comfortable doing that. It's a fairly hostile space. Here's different, everybody wants to be here at school. They don't want to be there. So it's um, a bit harder, but I struggled with that for a while, trying to decide whether or not I should. And in the end, I decided that I was just gonna trust that God knew what he was doing, that this is something that he was drawing me into. And so I did. Um, the last sort of 15 minutes of my talk just shared a bit of my own personal story with the students and You could have heard a pin drop in that room, it was actually an incredible experience. Um, Not a single person was distracted, which is really quite a miracle when you're thinking about 300 students. Um, And I think probably the most impactful thing to me was the response I got afterwards when I dismissed the students for lunch. I had a huge group of them, especially girls, come up to me just saying how impacting that story was and how it made what I was saying so real to them. And um, yeah, it was just a moment of going, that was really scary, really uncomfortable. Um, but I trusted God in that moment and I think it had an impact. Mm. So, yeah.
0: Beautiful. Thanks, Jess. Is there anyone else that <laughs> has testimony to share of hearing God's voice and um, just getting yourself, gathering enough mustering up enough faith to go, yeah, Oh, I'll do it, God. No, well, go and put it into practice more this week because he, he is more keen to speak to you and to lead you than you are passionate to hear him and ability to lead yourself. Um, and so um, place yourself there this week. Ask, ask yourself, Lord, where, what are you saying to me this week? Where are you leading me? Is there somebody who this week you have for me to go and get into an unfamiliar place in their lives? Um, So that you can share the good news of Jesus with them. Uh, Because that is what we do as disciples who make disciples. We look for and we pray for opportunities to come alongside other people. Um, Whether they are our age, older, younger, it doesn't matter. God leads us to all manner of people uh, for us to bear witness to his good news and the story of Jesus um, in our world. Um, Today is uh, part three of looking at our um, four focuses as a church. Our first one was prayer, our second one was discipleship, Um, our third one today is local mission and as we've alluded to next week is um, around our generations, our kids and youth. And when we say uh, mission, I mean mission is one of those words, right, that get thrown around churches like a hot potato and um, sometimes maybe we're not quite sure what we mean when we say the word mission. I mean, the word itself conjures up all kinds of meanings. Um, You know, our mate that surfed for 40 hours the other day, i walk away from going, man, that was a mission. Um, You know, that was a huge undertaking. Uh, Mission for you might be like a mission impossible kind of thing, you know, where you get the soundtrack going and, you know, this is your mission if you choose to accept, to go and infiltrate the, um, the archives of the Siberian army and steal all of their stuff and all of the rest of it. And if you'd you know This message will self-destruct in five minutes and all of that. You might think of mission around that kind of concept. You might um, think that mission might be an important assignment. You might think um, of a particular or specific task. You might think that mission is um, a position or a calling. Uh, maybe you hear the word mission and you're like, oh, that's, isn't that like a department in the church? There's like the missions department. Now, if I was to ask you, what do we mean when we say mission in church? I wonder what your response would be. In fact, let's have a crack. When you hear me say the word mission or local mission, you know, let's do a little bit of word association here. Mission, what do we, what do we hear? What do we think? What is it that comes to mind when you hear the word mission when we speak about it in church? Just fire away a couple of outreach, outreach. Helping. helping, serving. serving. Adventure, reflecting God's love, community, yeah, these things all fall under the category of mission. But you can see the diversity already in the room of what our understanding and what the application then might be of what we believe or think mission to be. When I was a kid, there was a couple from the church that I grew up in at Menai Baptist who left to go and live in Africa. Um, they were the missionaries. You know, we had the, um, the magnet of their family on our fridge. Who had some of them? Yep, your, your missionaries on the fridge. Um, you know, and they were on our fridge always saying, pray for us. And aside from what they were doing in Africa, I thought that their calling was to make us feel guilty every time we got the bread or the, or the milk or juice out of the fridge that in fact we weren't uh, praying for them. You know, every so often at Grace, mum and dad will remind us, let's pray for the missionaries, you know, and so we'd, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, or I can't remember what the prayer was. Thank you, God, for the, oh, I don't know, it was some weird, it wasn't weird, actually, it was a great prayer. Um, yeah, I'm not even going to try and remember it. But we tag on to the end. And Lord, be with the missionaries as they are doing your work. And so I, maybe like you, grew up with a framework of thinking that, Uh, Mission was for the one or two people in church who went to live in faraway places to go and tell uh, people about Jesus um, in all kinds of weird and crazy places to be as helpful as they could. And as I understood it, mission was for people who had their faces on fridge magnets. Mission was for people who went to a faraway land. People who we thought to pray of every now and again. And a mission was just for a select couple who could, you know, um, eat really weird things. You know, if you've been to Cam- uh, Cambodia with Brett or any of the teams, you'll see the tarantulas that they eat on the side of the street. And cockroaches, you can get deep fried, cock- you know, this is what people think. To be a missionary, you have to go and do these kinds of things. And maybe a mission for you is something that you have seen as reserved for the select few that can handle all of those weird and crazy out there things or maybe just for the, the pastors or it's just for the, the community minded people or it's just for the evangelists who can go and um, you know do their apologetics on the corner of the street somewhere and tell people to turn or burn, you know, that kind of thing or um, maybe it's just mission is just for people who have a particular um, or really strong bent for social justice you know, those who are fired up for the causes of the world and, you know, let's, let's be fired up about this and all let's get behind it. And my hope and prayer today is that as God speaks to us through his word, that um, you would leave more convinced of the intentionality of why God and where God has placed you um, in this church, um, where God has placed you on the street in which you live, uh, where and why God has placed you in the workplace That you are in, um, in the school that you are in, in the sporting clubs that you're in with the gifts that you have, you know, more convinced of the fact that God has chosen and called you and gifted and graced and equipped you and is empowering you and is leading you on toward his mission purposes in your life, more convinced of those things than when you were here. All that we would be able to love him and love others more completely. And so, to that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have um, called us together to be a family who is on mission together. And Lord, we thank you that um, this is a a concept and a topic and a way of life and a calling that is upon us that is um, not unique to one but is a collective call, that we would be your people in the world, that we would be a community inspired by love to live differently that we would be a people who um, live counter to the culture around us, that we would be uh, of your redemptive purposes, showing that there is a different way to live, that there is a different way to be, that there is a different God other than the multiplicity of gods of this world to serve. So Father, we pray that we would find ourselves in your big story this morning, in what you're doing and our place in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, during the last... 20 years of being at this church, God has um, captivated my imagination for what is possible when a community of people gather together, unified around God's mission and what he is doing in this corner of the world. You know, as we have served in schools ministry, as we have seen the frog crew do its thing for many years, as we've served in Um, schools ministry, through youth and kids camps, um, through all of the endeavours that we've been a part of, mainly music, seeing Kingsway Care begin um, somewhere in the last 10 years and the impact of Jacaranda Cottage and Platform 9 and Southern Cross Kids and Sea Change Op Shop, um, as God has used us in Kids Hope in schools, being mentors through people who've been involved in Christian Surfers, you name it, there has been so many mission exploits that we have found ourselves a part of. And we have seen lives change through the power of the gospel of Jesus. And I am certain that there is more to come. And I'm grateful that over the 20 years that I've been part of this church, that I have had my eyes widened to the power of a local church that unifies around a shared vision to see God's kingdom come Here on earth as Jesus prayed, as it is in heaven. That I have seen and we have seen and we share a collective history of what happens when we gather around a shared vision for what God is doing in our midst. That we would see more of the reality and life of heaven. All of the glory of heaven. The praise and worship of Father in heaven. The power of miraculous restoration and completeness of heaven land here in planet Earth. And I believe God is doing this. He is widening our eyes to see this. He is widening our eyes to be captivated, recaptivated, to have our imaginations again, which I think has been stolen over the years, which has been suppressed over the years, that the Lord is reawakening and reopening our eyes to what he is doing in our world, that you and I would find our place and our part in it, As we each endeavour to see the thin veil that separates heaven and earth. You know, we're not going to see it lifted in, well maybe we will see that lifted in our lifetime and let's keep praying to that end. You know, but as we serve each other, as we serve our community, as we serve the poor, as we pray for our neighbours, as we seek the welfare of our city, that veil tends to wear a little thinner and we see the presence and magnificence of God and his kingdom break into our everyday and we need to be people praying and believing that God still has so much more of that to come because one day there will be a fully lift, fully lifting of that veil, the full redemption of all things as Christ returns and calls all things to judgment and back to himself and the renewal and restoration back to the garden back to the glory, back to the wonder, back to the fullness, back to all of the intention that God had for the world. It is coming. And we are graced and blessed to build for that day. You know, nothing is wasted. No effort that we put in, no prayer that we pray, no meal that we make, no hand that we extend out to a needy friend, no, nothing we offer to an enemy of ours in love is wasted It doesn't all get blown up and burnt to pieces and thrown in the fire at the end of days. My friends, we are building for God's kingdom. We don't build the kingdom, that's his job. Thank goodness. If that was on our shoulders, we'd be stuffed. We build for God's kingdom. We build with God for God's kingdom. And so we are blessed not just to have front row seats in God's mission in this corner of the earth, but more than that, And I want to remind you of this this morning, that each of us are gifted, that we are graced, that we are called, and that we are chosen, and that we are being equipped not just to be spectators in God's mission, but players in the field, in the arena, playing our part in God's missional purposes in the world. I want you to turn to someone and tell them that you are blessed to be a blessing, Remind them of that. I'm going to grab a swig of water. You are blessed to be a blessing, brother. So as we come to speak to our focus on being a church on God's mission, um, locally here in our area, in our city, in um, you know the two, two, three and the 2230s and the 2227s and the, I don't know what's over the bridge, because we rarely go there, but the St. Georgies and the Hearst Villies and the um, Rock Dailies and the, you know, uh, all of, wherever we come from, wherever God has had us, as we come to speak about mission in these places, even Bundina, <laughs> more so Colonel. Um, there are three theological foundations that are important for us to stand on, and I'm going to keep these really bite-sized, and I promise to. Um, really small things that are critically important um, as we... Elise is sceptical. She's looking at me going, oh, bite-sized? Yeah, whatever. Um, but three really important things that we must understand from a theological point of view about mission. Christopher Wright says this in his book, The Mission of God. He says this, The whole Bible is itself a missional phenomenon. The writings that now comprise our Bible are themselves the product of and witness to the ultimate mission of God. The Bible renders to us the story of God's mission through God's people in their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation. There's a lot of big things in there. The Bible is the drama of this God of purpose engaged in the mission of achieving that purpose universally, embracing the past, present and future, Israel and the nations, life, the cosmos, the universe, everything, and with its centre, focus, climax and completion in Jesus Christ. He says this, mission is not just one of a list of things that the Bible happens to talk about only a bit more urgently than some. Mission is, in that much abused phrase, what it's all about. That the written word of God, the text that we study the text that we preach, the text that we receive inspiration from the Holy Spirit for is a document written to us and for us that encapsulates the grand narrative of God's mission in the world and us finding our part in it. Mission being the Missio Dei is what it's all about. All of it. That our ministry to Jesus, that our ministry to each other our ministry to the world around us, our gathering on the Lord's Day to break bread and to pray and to worship, to share in baptism, to hear the Word of God proclaimed. Not only those practical things, but our apprenticeship to Jesus, our surrender and our obedience to Him, our participation in spiritual disciplines for our own formation. It is all about participation in the Michio Day. That is the mission of God. The second foundation of mission is this, that mission begins with God. Mission begins with God. The beginning point of mission is not our good intentions, regardless of how holy they are. Neither does mission begin with great programs, regardless of how innovative they are. Rather, God himself is the beginning point of mission in his church and in our lives. Mission does not begin with a program. Mission does not begin with an overseas trip. It doesn't begin with a moment of encounter. It doesn't even begin in practically addressing a local need or social justice issue. Mission begins with God. It is who he is. He is a God of mission and he is a God on mission. So not only is mission what it's all about and God is a missional God, the third foundation is this, that God invites us to participation and partnership with him in that mission. The mission, while it inescapably involves us in planning and action, is not primarily a matter of our activity or our initiative. Mission, from the point of view of our effort and involvement, means this, the committed participation of God's people in the purposes of God for the redemption of the whole creation. The mission is God's and the marvel is that God invites you and I to join in. Wright says this, it is not so much that the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. The mission from that perspective is that mission was not made for the church. The church, us, this gathered family, we were created for God's mission. And you and I, as imperfect as we are, we are invited to committed participation, to committed partnership, to a covenant call to partner with God in His mission in our world, to see the whole of creation redeemed and renewed and reconciled to him. And for God to invite us into his purposes and for our hearts to even have the capacity to respond to that call is, in my opinion, a confounding miracle of grace. That in spite or maybe perhaps because of our imperfections, because of our weaknesses, because of our inability to do this work and our own god calls us not so that our name would be glorified in this mission he calls us to but his name would be glorified in the mission that he is about and so friend don't preclude yourself from god's mission don't count yourself out because you feel like you are unworthy don't count yourself out because you know that thing that you have or that you do or have done don't preclude yourself because of what people have said or where you have come from or Any other reason, because it is for those very reasons that God chooses you, that his power would be on display and not glory for our name. And so with the time that I have left today, I want us to look at the book of Nehemiah and draw from the scriptures. Last week there were eight things. This week there is five. I'm learning slowly five traits of a church that is effective in partnering with God in his mission. Five traits that we can Um, Hold on to that we can be encouraged by, that we can um, hold on to as things we can aspire to be. Um, These would be things that we um, would see as um, the culture of what God would be wanting us to be as a church as we partner with Him in His mission. You can get rid of that one, um, Rocky, and um, actually chuck the next one up. Uh, Same as last week, I'm giving you all five points straight up. So as I tell the story of um, Nehemiah, um, you might see these things at work um, in the story. And then we'll just have a, a, a moment at the end of, of some application um, around these things. So a couple of weeks ago, I spoke from Jeremiah uh, 29 on the topic of living as exiles in this world. Uh, we looked at how God had spoken through Jeremiah to the people of Israel um, who had been taken from their homeland in Judah um, into captivity in Babylon for a period of 70 years. And the message was clear, from God through Jeremiah that I want you to be different. I want you to live different. I want you to be a faithful presence and witness to my word and to my name in the prevailing culture, and here is how I want you to do it. And if you weren't here for that, go uh, back and listen to it online. And we come to Nehemiah today, and the context here is that Nehemiah was in Babylon at the time of exile. He was there. Nehemiah had been taken and was no longer living in Jerusalem, but was um, for a period, I'm not sure quite how many of those years, he lived in the land of Babylon, where he was to be one of these people living differently to the prevailing culture so that God's name would uh, be on display and that his kingdom would advance, albeit in exile. And what we see here is... um, while living in exile, Nehemiah's brother, a gentleman named Hanani, um, he, ca- he remained in Jerusalem and he came to find Nehemiah in Babylon. And after a handshake and a hug, Nehemiah asked his brother Hanani uh, what the state of affairs was back in Jerusalem. He was keen to know how his people were faring. He was keen to know what kind of state Uh, things were in. He wanted just the update around the grounds, what is going on back at home. And the news was not great. And we read of that in Nehemiah uh, chapter one. I'm kind of doing an overview of chapter one, Nehemiah one to four um, in in this. Um, The news was not great. In Nehemiah one, three, we read that the remnant of people in Jerusalem were in great trouble and shame. And why was this? And we learn that the walls of Jerusalem were broken to pieces and the gates had been raised to the ground by fire. And understandably so, when we read this, is that this caused Nehemiah incredible distress. I mean, at, at the news of his city being destroyed and what that meant and the symbolism of everything that that entailed. And thinking of those who were left, he was in great distress. In fact, we read that his response was, he sat down and he wept. And Nehemiah's heart broke for what was broken. You know, he sat in a place of deep grief and despair as he considered the loss of what this meant for his people. I mean, he mourned the loss of what was the place of his people's belonging. He mourned the loss of their identity as God's people caught up in the city of Jerusalem. And there was a sense of their national pride as God's chosen people to be a blessing in the world. There was a part of their identity was now lying in ruins on the ground. And their place of interfacing with the divine was laying in tatters on the ground. As he thought about all of the homes that he lived in and where his friends lived and where they grew up, the place where they provided for themselves and a place where they were protected, You know, the place where they built their lives, where they grew their families up, where they built flourishing society, all of that was in a big steaming heap, broken to pieces, laying in tatters on the ground. And among the stones lay buried their hope. Among those stones lay buried their dignity. Among all of that rubble lay their belief in a God who was apparently meant to be there for them through thick and thin. Would never leave them nor forsake them, yet here... Nehemiah is, sitting on the ground, tears and snot and wailing, laying before the Lord, probably banging the ground, God, why? How could this happen to my people? And Nehemiah's first response was to pray. He came to God feeling the full weight of his emotion. Um, People like me, and maybe you're like this, wired for positivity, um, can sometimes um, just brush over those emotions of grief and despair and heartbreak and go, and my, my phrase is, she'll be right. But sometimes she just won't be right. Sometimes, like Nehemiah, we need to sit with the rubble and we need to look at what is broken in our lives We need to take a hard look and see as we meander our communities and go about our lives and allow the grief and despair of what is broken to actually sink in. To not just brush it over or push it aside and say, hey, you know, God's going to do his thing one day. Let's just hold on tight, white knuckled while we just get through this thing called life. You know, we see in Nehemiah that this led him to a place of repentance You know, he repented for the sin of God's people. He repented for the sin of his father's and their father's households. He even had a moment of repentance for his own family and his own household. He recognized the impact of unfaithfulness to God by God's people. He took ownership before God for his part in it. And he pleaded with God that his prayers would be heard and to give him success in making right what was clearly wrong. And Nehemiah's first response to hearing of the brokenness of his community, to seeing how it had been worn down, how it had been pillaged by an enemy. It wasn't just to go and rile the troops and say, we're going to take the hill and we're going to rebuild the thing. No, he went to a place of prayer and a place of repentance a place of recognising the pain and the anguish, a place of recognising his part in it, recognising that, hey, I'm not perfect. My unfaithfulness may have got us to this point, perhaps. And God used that platform of prayer and of repentance for them to move on to the next thing. And chapter 2 outlines Nehemiah's next steps because there's no way that Nehemiah could sit idly by without responding and without acting. It wasn't within his nature. I don't think that God wires us, unfortunately, that way to be able to turn a blind eye. Uh, I think it was a Brooke Fraser, when she was Brooke Fraser, now she's got a weird last name, Liggett Wood. There was a song, Now That I Have Seen, I Am Responsible. And I think that that is part of the territory as a Jesus follower, that when we see, we are responsible. When we hear, we are responsible. And God wires us and he fills us with his spirit to respond to need. And so Nehemiah goes to King Artaxerxes. Imagine that was your name, kids. Artaxerxes. If you're looking for any tips, don't go there. Imagine spelling that on the phone to the uh, insurance companies or the... (laughs) And he goes to King Artaxerxes and he's rightfully looking downcast and in distress. King Artaxerxes says, why the sad face? Why the frown? Nehemiah asks for his blessing to return to Jerusalem so that he can rebuild the city. And in an act of boldness, and um, it probably helped that Nehemiah cleverly took some wine to an already tipsy king, he asked for a letter of recommendation that he can hand to the governors of what is called the province beyond the river. You know, Nehemiah had to pass through a neighboring kingdom to get back to Jerusalem. And so he asked for King Artaxerxes to write him a letter of reference. Dear, whatever his name is, please let my friend Nehemiah through. He's got to get back and rebuild the city. Signed, King Artaxerxes. And not only did uh, Nehemiah ask for the blessing to be able to get through old mate's territory, he said, hey, can I also have a letter to um, a guy called Asaph, and Asaph was the keeper of the king's forest, uh, because he knew that he was going to need some timber to do the rebuilding, and he needed a letter to ask Asaph if he could go and cut down a few trees and um, go and rebuild And so Nehemiah sets out on his journey and he hands his letter to the governor of the neighborhood next door and he does the Bunnings run for his Bunnings suppliers and he grabs his sausage sandwich and he rode um, into Jerusalem. He makes it back to Jerusalem, um, seemingly unscathed. Chapter 2 verse 12 does pick up the story and tells us how Nehemiah arose in the night. When he got back to Jerusalem, he waited for nightfall. No one knew what he was doing except he grabbed a few others. He jumped on his horse. Now the guys followed along beside him and they went and inspected all of the gates. And they rode around the perimeter of the city. Now they went to the, the fish gate and they went to the north gate. They went all around inspecting the carnage that had been exacted upon the city's gates and walls. I mean, he would have ridden past the place where he lived and grew up that now lay in ruins. He would have seen the street that he skated on. He would have seen the corner shop that he rode his bike up to with the 50 cents to buy the lollies from the shop, get his carob buds and his chunky's ears and his redskins. You know, he would have seen the walls that, as a kid, he kicked the soccer ball up against with his friends. He would have seen the swing set that he played on. He would have seen all of this destroyed and would have had his heart ripped to shreds. I mean, as he saw the temple where he worshipped and they worshipped Yahweh, the one true King of Israel, where they would come and sacrifice and they would meet with God, they see the temple a smouldering heap. This would have pulled, like pulling his heart out and throwing it on the ground and stamping on it over and over again. They saw the place where his fathers were buried, destroyed. All of the constructs of protection and safety that were there for his people, gone. I mean, I can see Nehemiah in that moment on his horse, just exhaling, exhaling with a big sigh of defeat. I mean, when I look at a giant construction site, like any of the big massive unit blocks, and all there is a hole in the ground, I think, where would you even start? Like, where does a builder even start? I mean, I can see Nehemiah in this moment feeling so deflated and so defeated. Where, where Where do we start? Man, everything is gone. Our homes, our walls, our temple, our shops, all of the things and all of the places, all gone. But as all good stories do, the soundtrack changes. The cheerless, dark, minor chord-driven, dirgy soundtrack that provided the backing track to the gloomy scenes of the wall inspection gave way to a sprightly more dynamic, bright, and uplifting. I'm imagining strings. I'm not much of a musical person, but I'm I'm seeing the soundtrack change. You're getting the picture. It's gone from the dun dun dun, you know, the walls are destroyed, to then the hopeful uh, moment where it elevates and it lifts, and Nehemiah rises out of the ashes, and he declares in front of everyone, "Let us rise up and build." And in return, all of those gathered around and they said, amen, brother, let us arise and build. And there is this climactic moment in the story and it says, and they all strengthened their hands for the work. They all strengthened their hands for the work. You know why, one of the reasons why I love Sunday gathering together my hands feel stronger after this. I don't know about you. There's something about being together in God's presence, gathering together around what God is saying, gathering together about what Holy Spirit is doing among us, gathering together and someone puts their hand on your shoulder and says, I'm praying for you this week, or asks, how are you going? Says, what do you need? I walk away and all of a sudden this enormity of the task of feeling like I'm a part of what God is doing and feeling the weight and the wonder and the adventure and all of the the magnificence that comes with being called into God's mission. When I have this, my hands feel stronger. And words quickly spread among the people and they all came together to rebuild. And chapter three is dedicated purely to a comprehensive list of activity in who arose, what they did, what skills they brought, and the impact that they all had together. There was a guy called Iliashab, the high priest, and the other high priest, they started to rebuild the Sheep Gate. Um, There were people from the town of Jericho. They thought, well, let's all band together. Next to them, beyond them, there were some guys called the um, Zakur, son of Imri. The Fish Gate was rebuilt by the sons of someone called Hassanah, Then a guy called Merimoth, son of Uriah. And the grandson of a guy called Hakoz repaired a section of the wall next to them. Right beside him was a gentleman named Meshallam. And he was the son of a guy called Berechiah. He was the grandson um, of Meshezabel and Zadok. He was another guy in the midst of it. And you get all of these wonderful names. Uziel, he was a goldsmith by trade. You know, he was used to forging out jewellery and fine things. He laid down his tools to come and build the wall. Thought, you know what? I'm, I'm going to set this aside for now. And I'm going to bring what I've got. And I'm going to work alongside everybody else. And beyond him was Hananiah, the manufacturer of perfumes. And Hananiah left the perfume industry and began building. And Rephia, son of her, the leader of uh, the half district of Jerusalem was next to them on the wall and next to him, Jedi, Jediah, who repaired the wall across from his own house. He went, you know what? This is in my front yard. It's annoying me. I'm going to go out and fix that bit. It's like my lawn at the moment. Look outside. My lawn mower broke yesterday. And I look out the front. I go, well, I'm not going to mow anyone else's when I can't mow my own. So I'm going to mow my own. You know, this guy just thought, I'm just going to do the bit in my front yard. That's all I've got the time for. That's all I've got the capacity for. I'm just going to do that 10 metres from there to there. And out he went, bullet a gate, and he rebuilt the few metres out the front of his own house. And then Shalom, son of Halohesh, he grabbed his daughters and they repert the section next to that. You know, as I read this, it paints for me a picture of um, that this was a widespread, collective, all-in affair. That no one was left behind. That everyone did their thing. That everyone had their part to play. They did what they could and they worked together toward this shared vision from which they arose and said, let us rebuild together and they set about the task of doing it. I mean, I can see moments when it would have become all too much and they wanted, would have wanted to just give up. And moments where they're slogging it out in the heat of the day and someone says, man, let's just go for a nap or let's go for a swim. They're like, no, nah, come on, man, we've got this. We can do this. Someone going, no, I'm just not feeling up to it. I don't, I don't see the bigger picture anymore. Someone coming alongside and saying, hey, mate, Remember what was. I mean, remember how amazing this place was. Remember what God did in us in this place. Now, and there was others just feeling a bit disillusioned by the whole thing or perhaps upset with Nehemiah or upset with those who were calling the shots. And they're like, who are they to tell us what to do anyway? We're just going to do our own thing, you know. And, they were, you know, and there would have been people coming alongside going, oh, man, no, guys, we're not, building, we're not building anything for ourselves here. This isn't about... Nehemiah. This isn't about the guys calling the the people to work here. It's not got nothing to do. This is about what God's doing, man. This is about what God is doing. I can imagine the camaraderie as they rubbed up shoulders against one another in all of their questioning, in all of their frustration, in all of their doubts, in all of their tiredness and exhaustion. Together, there would have been that vibe of, no, we've got this. Remember how far God has brought us. Remember where God is taking us. And there would have been a stirring as the people worked together to partner with God in what he was building. Like any project or undertaking of this scale, though, it wasn't without its challenges. You know, there are a couple of cheeky guys in the background in chapter four describes the vocal opposition from an angry and enraged man named Sanballat. And while he had an audience of his brothers and some soldiers from the army of Samaria, um, he piped up and began to be quite vocal, well within earshot of all of those rebuilding. He starts questioning, I mean, what, what are these feeble Jews doing? Do they, do they really think that they're going to finish this thing in a day? I mean, who... Who do they think they are rebuilding this thing that we've taken? Who do they think they are rebuilding what we've destroyed? Even, even if, and he's looking at the wall that they rebuilt, even if a fox climbed up, and I've seen plenty of foxes in my time, and they, um, they don't make much noise. You don't really know they're there, and they're very light-footed. Even, even if a fox was to climb up on that section of the wall, it's just going to come tumbling down. I mean, will they restore this for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Do they have what it takes? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish, even burnt ones at that? You see, this questioning, this insidious chirping of the enemy, this doubt casting thief. Who was there to rob them of their joy of building this enemy that came and just got into their ears nagging away who do you think you are to rebuild this who do you think you are to be part of what god is doing who do you are you going to finish this who are you to even start i mean i don't know about you but i hear those things <laughs> i've got the voices i'm not crazy but I've got voices in my head. <laughs> Dave, who are, we, who are you to teach? Who are you to preach? Who, who are you to... And they're just, just there. What's the point? What have you got to bring? If only they knew. You just hear that, that nattering and that nagging of the enemy constantly there. See, I think there's nothing more scary to the enemy than when God's church unite to build with God and what he's doing. And we ought to expect and prepare ourselves for the fact that there is an enemy. There is an adversary. There are powers and principalities in our world that want to stop the rebuilding of what God is doing for his kingdom and the age to come. It should not surprise us one iota that we hear the voice of an enemy in our lives saying, who do you think you are to be a follower of Jesus? Who do you think you are to be part of a church community? Who do you think you are to serve in that way? Who do you think you are? We ought to expect this, but none of it stops Nehemiah and none of it ought to stop us. Now, By this point, the the wall was rebuilt to half of its height um, and it's because the scripture tells us that God's people had a mind to work. And what a beautiful thing. And God's people have a mind to work. Just let that sit when you consider what God is calling you to. I mean, I know at times I can feel like a passive passenger in the work of God in my life. But perhaps God is shaping something in us to have a mind to work. And Sanballat and his cronies continued to plot against them, Here's what Nehemiah and the people did. They prayed and God confused their plans. God confused the plans of their adversaries and the work carried on. Some of them swung hammers. Others stood guard with their swords. They remained vigilant for each other while at the same time reliant on God to protect and to fight for them. I mean, a beautiful picture of a church unifying together in prayer, knowing full well the fight that we are in and the work that God has got for us, remaining one by each other's side, fighting for one another, but yet at the same time deeply reliant on God that this is his mission and that he will fight for us. And so the first trait of a church that partners with God in what he is doing is this is that our hearts break for what is broken. I mean, Nehemiah hears and then sees the destruction of his city and he cries when he heard these words he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days. I mean we don't have to look too far to see the enemy wrought ruin in our own communities. I mean, the loneliness and the isolation that people feel in our community ought to cause us to mourn. The repugnance of violence that exists within families and relationships ought to break our hearts. I mean, the confusion that people are faced with, often in shame, as a culture lost at sea tries to rewrite the foundations of identity and gender and sexuality. In the wretchedness of addiction, young men emptying pay packet after pay packet into poker machines at the local pub. The havoc created in people's lives through the abuse of trust and power. At the hands of institutions and other people who would seek to hold it and use it over people. In the breaking down of historical church confession and tradition, that ought to stir something within us. The injustice and inequity that people face in having access to affordable and fair housing ought to stir us. The number of children who turn up to our schools hungry because there is too much strain on the family budget ought to be something that breaks our heart. The pillaging of our natural resources and other mistreatments of our environment should be something that causes us to go, man, this just isn't right. The ongoing injustice and mistreatment of our First Nations people I mean, there's, we're scratching the surface and we're seeing movement here for our First Nations people, but man, still the lack of voice, and the mistreatment and the injustice ought to cause us to move. And the unbridled busyness and pace at which people live and the stress and the breakdown that that causes in our lives and our families, that should cause us to be a bit distraught. I mean, I could keep going I mean, you see them. And maybe, maybe this week as you go, ask the Lord, Father, show me what breaks your heart and allow your heart to be broken for what breaks His. So as you look around, what has been reduced to rubble in our community that breaks your heart? I mean, what ruins do you walk among every day that cause you to weep? There is much that breaks the heart of God, and there is great need among our people. What are we going to do with this? I mean, what are you going to do with this? What are we going to do with this? How do we as a church become forward-facing and incarnational and more deeply steeped in our local community, that we would see people who are suffering greatly, whether we see it, whether we hear it or whether we don't. What are we going to do with the suffering in our local community? See, Nehemiah didn't just rush off to go and solve those problems. He sat and allowed the grief of what was lost to be felt. He allowed his heart to be softened by the reality of what was. Nehemiah's heart did not calcify at the enormity of the brokenness, but was stirred to pray, to gather, to work together and to build. And maybe you feel like that heart is calcified. There's a heart of indifference to the suffering that we see, and I get that. Sometimes we see it so much and we can become indifferent. We allow the calcification of our heart to limit what God is doing through us and our willingness to jump in. Let's be a church of soft hearts who don't rush off but, number two, people who pray. Nehemiah comes to prayer and repentance, confessing apathy, inaction and unfaithfulness of his people. He comes before God to confess. He asks for forgiveness He reminded God of the promise he'd made to them. He prayed for success in their endeavours and for grace and for mercy as they went. And I think if we're fair dinkum about being committed partners with God in what he's doing and calling us to in this local community, we must begin in prayer. We must repent. We must recognise the part that we have played, whatever that part might be. We must be reminded of God's promise and not that he needs, but to remind God of his promises too. We must pray for God's blessing, for his strength, for his favour, for his strategies, for his wisdom, for his provision, for his power to go before us and be at work as we build with him. And so I invite you again tonight to come and pray with us here at seven o'clock. And I make no apology of landing this in something really practical because tonight... And next Sunday night we have an opportunity to be welcomed into God's presence again in a different way Sunday nights to pray and to seek God for what he's doing to seek the the word for now, the healing word for now, the restoring word for now seeking God's word and his promises for what he is doing among us and through us because we must be people who pray for our community number three gather around God's vision And strengthen our hands for the good work. And after Nehemiah inspected the walls and the gates and witnessed firsthand the destruction, he came back to the people with a holy discontent, with eyes that saw what the Spirit had showed him and with clarity around the task that was at hand. And he said to them, come on, guys, let's build. And they replied, yes, let us arise and build. I love that vision came from God. It was articulated among them then passion and commitment came from within. I mean, this is on all of us. This is not a Ruth thing in youth ministry. It's not a Shelley and Nicole thing in our kids' ministry. It's not a Dave thing. It's not a, our elders thing. This is an us thing. This is a story of mission where vision was owned. And that's a work that I can't do for you. I can articulate I can help make sense of what God is maybe saying and maybe doing because I don't see the whole picture. There's only so much that one can do, but together as we arise, we gather around God's vision, not Dave's vision. We gather around God's vision, not Ruth's vision. We gather around God's vision, not the multiplicity of vision statements and things that have been articulated over years gone by. No, we gather around God's mission And I am grateful that I'm not doing this on my own. And there are, there is, all of you, all of you already are partners in what God is doing. Because to expect this of one person would only not only be unfair, but extraordinarily disappointing. (laughs) It's just the truth. None of this can do it on our own. There must be an us in this call to arise. ...and to build what God is building. Hebrews 10.24 says... ...and let us consider how we may spur one another on... ...to love and good deeds... ...not giving up meeting together... ...as some are in the habit of doing... ...but encouraging one another... ...and all the more... ...as you see the day approaching. And the last two... ...we play our part. Now this is a... I love the story of who got involved. Everyone from the high priest... ...to the granddaughters of a man named... Halohesh, ...every man, woman, son daughter, grandpa, grandma, priest, the jeweler, the chemist, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, all got down and dirty, got dusty and sweaty in whatever capacity they could. They stood together to build toward their God-purposed future. The kids weren't told to wait. The kids weren't told to grow up first The women weren't held back. The elderly weren't relegated to the pews of heaven's waiting room. Professionals didn't leave their work at work. They brought their skill to the body. The church I see is not a church that sends out the qualified ones, but a church that sends all of us, all of us, A church where children serve alongside elders, a church where gender, age or qualification does not disqualify, a church who work alongside each other shoulder to shoulder, bringing what they have, doing what they can, a church that supports one another in the building of what God is doing, who believe in one another, who call out each other's talents, fanning into flame the gifts that God has placed on each of your lives. This is an us thing and we have to play our part. This was not a people stuck worshipping on the altar of one day when, nor were they relishing in the memories of the glory days gone by. For them the time was not later, the time was not ahead, the time to rise and build was now. There is no better time for us to rise than now. God is calling us to work together, to unify around His vision, to partner with Him to, as what the word says, strengthen what remains and could die. It is the time for us to rise and stand together. And the beauty of the church is that he brings us together what we could never do alone. And lastly, these people protected each other in prayer and love. As the voice of the naysayers arose and they plotted together to come and fight Nehemiah and his people, and to cause confusion on it. As those voices came and crept in and said, What are they doing? They're not going to finish in a day. Who do they think they are? Do they think those stones are going to come back to life? The fox thing, the whole kit and caboodle, as they were confronted with the voice of the enemy saying that this is not possible. Who were they to do it? There was a church, there was a group of people that united together and prayed. And God set a guard amongst them as protection day and night. Nehemiah said to them, Remember the Lord who was great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And as they responded to that call to pray and to love and to protect one another, the enemy's plan was confused, and the people's um, and God confused the plan of the enemy. 52 days later, this wall was built. It was finished. Despite all of the reasons why it shouldn't have. Despite the tiredness, the exhaustion, probably the moments where they wanted to give up, despite the voice of an enemy telling them they can't do it, despite every reason why it ought not have been built, the promise of God saw this thing through. In 52 days, it was finished. Upon its completion, the surrounding nations ate humble pie all day long. They went home with their tails between their legs, realising their power was no match for the God of Israel. And this paved the way for God's people to return safely from exile in Babylon to take up residence once again in the land God had promised them. All up, 49,697 people returned, along with 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, 6,720 6, donkeys. I don't know why they needed that many donkeys, but that's a lot of donkeys. Now, if we are going to be the church that God is calling us to be, to be a forward-facing church, to be an incarnational church, to be as Jesus was, embodied in the communities that we live in and are called to. If we are going to be fair dinky die to carry on the call that has been the thumbprint of God to be a church of mission in this region, then we need to be these things. We need to have our hearts broken for what is broken. We need to pray. We need to gather around God's vision. We each need to play our part and we need to fight for the unity among God's people to protect each other and to love each other as we go. Let's stand together and we'll finish up. I'll get the band to come up and we'll sing a last song.